I wouldn't say I'm never going to work with her just because she's Ivanka Trump in the White House. I think you have to, like, really hold them to what their rhetoric is. Hi, I'm Carrie Budoff-Brown, editor of Politico, and welcome back to Women Rule, the podcast. Today we're talking to Tina Chen, former assistant to President Barack Obama and former chief of staff to First Lady Michelle Obama. During her time in the Obama administration, Chen also served as the executive director for the White House Council on Women and Girls. We'll talk with Chen about being a working single mother, how Michelle Obama was as a boss, and whether Tina would ever work for the Trump administration. Stay tuned for our interview. On our podcast, we'll be bringing you conversations and taking you backstage with women leaders, the big bosses in politics and policy. If you like our show, please subscribe to Women Rule on iTunes, rate us and leave a review. Share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at C. Budoff Brown. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. Now let's get to our interview with Tina Chen. Thank you. Tina Chen, for joining us today for the Women Rule podcast. It's great to have you. Tina Chen is um, just coming off an eight-year stint, right, in the in the White House from start to finish. I introduce myself as unemployed these unemployed, days. <laughs> unemployed, but with a very right. distinguished resume, right? Um, I wanted to know what, what your guiltiest pleasure has been since you wrapped up in the White House, something ah, you're, ah. you're absolutely embarrassed to admit, but you will right now. Uh, all right. So, like, how many television shows <laughs> I have binge-watched? Really? <laughs> Seriously. Really? I've caught up on Scandal. I've caught up on Homeland. I'm catching up on Billions as we speak. Okay, good. <laughs> That's my guilty pleasure. So, so pleasure. TV, binge-watching. Yeah. How to get away with murder. Like, I did them all. Good. Good. Do you feel good about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know other people say books. I've been reading these great books, and I've been yeah, – no, no. Uh, no judgment here. I wanted to dive in a little bit here. I wanted to get a little personal, I think, uh, to start. I was pretty struck by some of the stuff I read about your background. And one one thing in particular um, was was how your your father was in denial that you were a girl. <laughs> yes. For, and, and for three days, I think he yes. referred to you as, as a boy. And, and I have to say – or you because you were not a son. And I have to say it reminded me of something that I had forgotten about my father – but I wanted to just hear that story first, and then I, w- I want to bring up something. All right. So there's a G-rated version, and okay. there's a not-so-G-rated yeah, yeah. version. I'll, since this is a podcast, mm-hmm. I guess I can mm-hmm. do, like, mm-hmm. the full-on version. Mm-hmm. Um, so and it, now the thing about my parents to remember is they were immigrants from China. Um, actually, I think it's important these days to say they were refugees from mm-hmm. China, you know, escaping um, the end of World War II and the, you know, communists coming in. You know, they left Shanghai the day the communists were arriving in Shanghai. And so Coming from that old world China background, I was, I was his firstborn. You know, he was hoping for a son because that's what Chinese culture you know, emphasizes. And so, yes, uh, about three days after I was born, he turned to my mother and he said, has the baby been circumcised yet? Have we figured out how we're going to get her, the baby circumcised? To which she had to remind him, she's a girl. <laughs> we're, we're not doing circumcision. <laughs> Had he not been changing your diapers at that point? <laughs> well, clearly <or>? not <laughs> yeah, either yeah, as, yeah, exactly. <laughs> as the traditional Chinese yeah, man that exactly he was. Yeah. But I, I say that and a little bit to then say, you know, once he kind of came out of his fog, that 
there was no moment in my childhood that I ever felt that my father really had any lesser expectations of me or ambitions for me or support and love for me than he would have for a son. And in fact, I attribute a lot of my personal success and my personal drive and ambition to my parents um, who really poured all that expectation they might have had to a son directly into my sister and I. So as a result, my father had no sons ever. He had really? me and my sister. Yep. I mean, how did you – was that story just something that was told to you? Like when, when's your first recollection of that story? You know, I, I've known for a long time. I think my – my mother found it really amusing, yeah. um, and you know, so I think I, I learned it, you know, fairly fairly young, just as a really funny story about my father's somewhat absent mindedness. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, it, I was as I said, it, it reminded me of how um, I remember asking my father at a very young age if he was disappointed that he had only two girls as well, um, and he said. Of course not. I do everything with you that I would do with a boy. And I actually um, thought that was a pretty cool statement, I think, in retrospect, because I think that instilled a sense in me that I did not have any less value. You know, like, my father's a good man, right? But, like, I, so when you, when I saw that your father had initially hoped you were a boy, I mean, I think we these stories, these, this happens, but um, – it was just sort of it, it did remind me of something I haven't thought of probably in like thirty years that like I asked my father if he if he had wanted a son and he said no of course not that's well, not well you know it's no, the culture yeah, yeah and I, yeah. I am now the mother of an adopted yeah. daughter from China yeah. you know because of the you know and there you know she was available for adoption who knows why yeah. right but one of the reasons why you know there were so many little girls you know who are available for adoption in China is because of this cultural preference for boys so actually I, I was going to ask you ask you about that I, I you you adopted your your daughter as a single mother I did so tell me how that experience has had has informed what you did in the White House Knowing being a single mother, now you are, you have an older son as well. Right. Um, but when you made the choice to be a single parent, my son was born when I was married. Mm-hmm. My my husband and I subsequently got divorced not too long mm-hmm. after he was born. So, you know, I'd been a single working mom really my and you were entire a, back life. Then you were a corporate lawyer. I was a corporate lawyer at Scadden yep. Arps. I was a litigation yep. partner. Um, I did that for twenty three years until the day I left to go to the White House. So the you know entire time my ch- my my children were growing up I was a, a single working mom lawyer, um, but you know I was blessed to have a lot of resources and I am, I emphasize this every time I tell this my story the story about myself because you know I was a lawyer at Skadden Arps so I had the resources to have a wonderful set of you know nannies who came to our house who actually. I had two people work for me for years and years, including one who moved with me from Chicago to D.C. So they were part of my family. So I trusted them with my children. I had the ability to travel overnight because one of them would stay. You know, I had means. And it was still hard as a single working mom. So um, when we got to the White House, you know, I had personal experience for how hard it can be to be a working mom. But only imagine the women who are working on an hourly wage or who don't have sick days um, and worrying all day long about the kind of care your, your child is getting. And that fueled a lot of the commitment that I had, that Valerie Jarrett and I shared, because she's also a single working mom, um, that the president had because he it was in a family where his spouse worked. Um, the you know, real commitment that we all shared to what we call the working family issues, mm-hmm. paid 
paid leave, you know, flexible scheduling, you know, career retention efforts um, to make sure that women are able to stay in the workforce and not have to compromise on how their kids are cared for. For women who are listening, and this is a very familiar feeling for me, I'm, I have a four and a half year old, I work tons of hours, I'm blessed with a husband who is able to take on the predominant role of childcare at home. But like, I still haven't seen my daughter much this week, right? So what, how did you sort of, what, what pushes you through those periods where you're, you're not seeing you were working in the White House for her teenage years? Yeah, I was, I was. How much guilt or how, how did you manage that, that sort of internally in your head, that balance? Yeah, it's, well, it's not easy. And so yeah. I think it's important to tell the truth about this mm-hmm. stuff and not make it look like, oh, this is like, you can have it all. It's mm-hmm. really easy because it's, it's, it's not easy. Um, you know, I made you know, a lot of choices. Um, I sometimes tell the story. And I think it's important to tell these stories, too, that, you know, you make choices about what's important and what's not. Um, so, for example, when we had a leak in our second floor bathroom, I fixed the leak, but I didn't fix the hole that it left in the ceiling <laughs> because I didn't have time to. And then I decided, well, it's the second floor bathroom. Nobody <laughs> sees it. So who cares? Yeah. The whole state, I think, until this renovation that I'm doing right now, (laughs) so like 15 years. But really, it wasn't, you know, you make those choices about what's important and what's not. And, um, and I think if you're, if you put your kids first, you know, when you, and and always, but recognizing that sometimes there's give and pull, you know, they'll know that, you know, they'll know that you're trying and they'll know, um, there's a lot of luck involved, I gotta say. You know, there's a lot of luck that the, um, school play, you know, isn't, you know, stuck during the middle of a trial. There are moments, I'll forewarn you, caricature kids are just becoming <laughs> verbal. There are moments when kids are smart and they know just how to just kind of like, oh, yeah. you know, just dig something in when <laughs> when they're unhappy. Yep. Um, you know, oh, mom, you, you're not home again. You know, yeah. even though they're yep. actually, they're perfectly fine. Exactly. That you're not, but yep. they, they know that'll get you. Um, my son once, and this was not him trying to get me. This was him and this is why it touched me a lot, being genuinely worried. We're driving to school. I'm in the middle of a trial. So we're I'm very tense, but I'm driving them to school in the morning before I have to go down to court. And we're halfway through the trial. And he just says in the carpool on the way to school, and he probably at this point was like nine or nine or 10, I'm really worried about you, mom. Like it was a really serious, mature voice. <laughs> and that was like, oh, no, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. It, but he's 29 now. Yeah. He is strong, resilient, a wonderful person. You know, the other message, I will say now that my kids are 20 and and, and 29, that they, um, you know, they get through it. They are, kids are resilient. You know, if you love them and they know that, then they can get through anything too. Yep. So I, I'm just reassuring you, Carrie. It. I get it. No, I, I hear it now already and it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. Um, I want to talk with you about your former boss, the first lady of <laughs> yes. the United States, Michelle Obama. What was it like in that in the in the first lady's suite, you know, in the East Wing? What was she like as a boss? So she and I think get along because we're really pretty similar, you know. Both, and maybe it's our legal training, maybe it's just our personalities. Um, I think we're both pretty strategic. Um, we are pretty exacting in the sense that, you know, when folks come in with a proposal. You know, I sort of want to know, all right, exactly, why are we doing this? What will we get? What are the details on it? And she would ask the same questions. We knew that our biggest asset in the East Wing was her and her time um, because, as we always like to say, we didn't have a budget. We didn't have policymaking authority. We had, like, no authority, right? Yeah. We only had, you know, the power of her presence and personality. And so how could we best use that? You know, was how- she, like, a tough boss? I mean – 
think no, there was this I mean, perception of her out there that she's yes, like a tough boss, yeah. right? Well, I mean, what is the diff- like the caricature that's out there? Or, yeah. So, I, so you're familiar. Well, it depends. With what I'm it depends. Saying. It depends on what yeah. you mean by tough. Yeah. I think she asked probing questions, mm-hmm. um, and but they were all good questions. Mm-hmm. Um, she challenged our team, you know, to think bigger um, if something wasn't big enough. Um, but she was not tough in the sense of. You know, one of the things she was really good at, and I have hoped that I, I was also a leader who did this, which was, you know, you can ask the hard questions without belittling someone. I believe that you can be nice and you can succeed. Oh, absolutely. Right? No, I think that's right. Yeah. No, and, and I think it's it's a it's a false choice, right, to say that in order to be tough at your job, if that means being, you know, expecting a high degree of execution, you know, and performance, that that requires being mean or belittling or not supportive. What was your toughest day at the White House? Um, well, a lot of people talked about this, including the president. I mean, I think for a lot of us, the day that stands out the most is uh, Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really was. It was just came out of the blue, and I remember um, – we I can't remember what the event was, but the first lady was speaking to an event in the South Court Auditorium. So I had to break the news to her after she I didn't do it while she before she spoke. I waited till after she spoke and then told her the news afterwards. And actually, um, we rarely she rarely went to the Oval in the middle of the day. You know, they saw each other at the end of the day. But that day, and especially since we were walking past through the West Wing to get back to the East Wing, um, she went to see him. Uh, and I think that was because we were all so emotional. It, anybody who was a parent that day, I think, just had to look. I can barely speak about it now without getting choked up. You know, can barely think about this image of five and six-year-olds getting gunned down and en masse in school without thinking about your own kids. So what was that moment in the Oval Office when she went in there? Well, she, they went in alone. I didn't go in with her. I walked her over there, you know, and, you know, that was that was a time for them just to be with each other, I think. But we all, we all felt that and just the, um, you know, the powerlessness and the frustration, as you saw, I mean, you, you were observing it in the, in the months and years after that, when even that horrific tragedy could not move us, you know, to do any sort of sensible gun regulation, you know, was, you know, a sort of pain of frustration that all of us felt. And I know the president felt acutely. Does he do any work? Did you expect them to continue any of that kind of work post presidency now? And well, I think what it's, does, it's early days, so yes. there, there's what, I've been getting yeah. that question a <laughs> yeah. lot. Uh-huh. I, I know they're both going to take some time to think about it. They've got some things on their agendas already. They got you know they signed this big book, book contract, so they've got books to write, um, a daughter to get off to college, and having been through that with my you know children, especially the first one, it's like really hard, you know, um, uh, and getting settled, you know, in this new environment, in, in this new space and making sure Sasha is settled as well. Um, so that's taking up a lot of time. And I think they're both going to be deliberate in thinking about how to um, act and how to use, you know, they're very aware of the platform, you know, um, that they have and they want to do it. You know, these are two people who have been motivated by public service their entire lives, and that's not going to change as they enter this new phase. Any any hints of what the what that is, though? No, I don't know. I mean, she has. Is that because she doesn't know yet, or because? Well, she doesn't really know. She uh-huh. honestly really doesn't know. I mean, we have said in the past, and we said this before we left the White House. Obviously, the issues like 
childhood obesity that we did in Let's Move and, um, you know, college attainment for kids like we did with Rich Hire. And in particular, our last initiative that we worked on girls' education, adolescent girls' education around the world, are things she cares about and she expects to stay with in some form, you know, um, for the rest of her life. Um, but I think it remains to be seen what that form is. Is So I want to know how many times a day you text to one or the two of them or anybody in your former circle with a, like a WTF kind of text. <laughs> yeah, actually not that often. Not that often. Well, here's why, Carrie. I'm not watching the news that often oh, either. Really? Oh, interesting. <laughs> the other, in addition yeah. to like watching scandal and things is I have, you know – assume the luxury of not needing to have the television yeah. on all day long. Americans right now are pretty uh, seemingly obsessed with what is going on, though. So you're not part of that I mean, feeling I, like you have to keep up with this. Because it's, it's, there's so much happening every so much day, happening. Tina. You know, it's no, like, and I, I have missed things. I mean, I, I'll run into somebody and like, this will happen. I said, what? Right? You know, I, I, and it's all just the work that you guys did. I know. Well, some of it is... On the work that we did, I mean, here's the thing. We, um, we, we more than anybody know that elections have consequences. So some of what's happening is what we said would happen. You know, if you look back at, you know, either the president or the first lady's campaign speeches, you know, they laid out what they thought would happen. There are some underlying cultural changes that I think we were able to affect, you know, LGBT, you know, rights and not just the rights, but the underlying view of, um, uh, our LGBT community um, that I think has changed fundamentally. Um, you know, I think on working families, we've changed the conversation. It used to be that, you know, talking about paid leave was like this nice to do cost thing that maybe I'll do. There was no understanding that it was kind of essential as a business practice. And, you know, you've, you've got the new administration even talking about it now. So I don't think those things are going back. What just happened in healthcare? Some of what ha- just happened in healthcare is because we have shifted the paradigm from it being okay for 20 million people not to have health insurance because health insurance isn't something people are entitled to have to people understanding, no, no, that's not okay. Um, even conservatives understanding, no, it's not okay to just for people to go through their life without having some form of affordable health insurance. So, how did coverage. you feel about what happened with the Republicans not being able to do it uh, with Obamacare? I, I felt like the reaction was, in some way, a little bit for for Democrats, a little too celebratory because I don't I don't think that necessarily. You know, it doesn't that, end the debate. No, it doesn't end the debate. And I think there's, as we know, there's a lot that he can, that the that President Trump can do to still, you know, uh, disrupt disrupt what what was built. Um, and so, like, what what is your what was your take? Like, how are you feeling good about that, or are you more optimistic than than like than the view I just expressed in terms of how? In danger, it really is. Even if there's not a law in that passed, I, I I covered the healthcare bill passing in 2009 and 10, aware of all the potential pitfalls and how it hasn't been dealt with for seven years, and that it seems really fragile. Um, well, there's a lot of you know it's a really complicated system, as you know from covering it. And you're right. I think you know one of the things I did say to someone over the weekend was you know this was this was a good step, but we have to stay vigilant because we do know there's lots of things that can happen administratively or in a regulatory way um, to undermine you know um, the Affordable Care Act. But I do think that people's awareness has risen into how important it is. How did the Obamas react to what happened? I, don't know. I didn't talk to them about it. You didn't? I didn't. I don't know if I believe 
you. No, <laughs> sorry, just joking. Maybe I do. Um, I wanted to talk with you about you're you're taking on a new role as as well right now on an, an empowerment, empower women. Yeah. Empower. United States of women. women. Well, yeah. that, but you're also signed on as a special advisor to oh, another. Oh, for empowering a billion women. Y- y- yes. So I know yes. that. And I'm, you know, I, I, the word empowerment I'm hearing a lot from the Trump White House as well. I'll, I'll give you a chance to talk about about your effort. I'm feeling like there, as you said, there is now, um, that idea has carried through. At least there's some staying power to this idea. Um, and Tell me a little bit about what you're doing, and then I'm going to ask you a little bit about Ivanka. All right. So as I said at the top, mm-hmm. I'm really unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> the one um, uh, paying piece that I've signed up for uh, so far is to be an advisor to EBW 2020, which stands for Empowering a Billion Women mm-hmm. by 2020, um, which is a, an online um, for-profit platform to help women entrepreneurs grow and scale their businesses. What are the specific challenges for, for women-owned businesses um, that aren't being addressed by like public policy or, or just encouragement? Like what is, what is most needed? Um, some of it is skill development, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, and so one, that's one of the things EBW has is an online, you know, suite of skill you know, courses um, and information. Um, a big part of it is access to capital. Um, so, you know, we know that banks don't lend to women and minority-owned businesses at the same rate as they do to, you know, majority male-owned businesses because they're viewed as a high risk, even though the loan re- repayment rates are quite good for women-owned businesses. Um, and yet there's still this, you know, prejudice to overcome when you're actually lending money. The other thing I'm doing with my volunteer time is you may recall that we did a summit last June um, that culminated the work of the Council on Women and Girls um, called the United State of Women Summit. Mm-hmm. Um, our partner at the time there that owns the brand United State of Women is um, a, an NGO called Civic Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the United State of Women is continuing now as a grassroots um, uh megaphone for the women's movement inside Civic Nation. And it is existing to sort of activate women at the grassroots level in support of all of these great women's organizations that exist, mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood, the National Women's Law Center, the National Partnership for Working Families, you know, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. So what does that look like day to day with the United States of Women? Um, is that is it more summits? Is it so we're going to do some more summits? Yeah. We're going to do more summits across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, we're we are activating people locally. Um, they have been working together with the Women's March, and we had organizers at the various Women's Marches taking down names to add to mm-hmm. the United State of Women mailing list. So it's really trying to bring all of those groups together that used to come to see us in the White Got House, it. you know, um, but weren't talking to each other together, um, but in support of them, and then to give them a national voice and a grassroots outreach. Actually, when you said the Women's March, I actually haven't thought about that much. And I think that was the question at the time when that march happened was how do you continue that? How do women who believed in that movement that day, how do they not just make it a one-day movement? I mean, is this somewhat of a response to that? Well, we were starting this before. I mean, I think think the Women's March is part of the same, symptomatic of the same problem that we observed from the White House, you know, over the course of the last eight years, which was this phenomenon of lots of great organizations that are developing great policy for women and girls that are doing incredible work, but that, first of all, aren't connected to each other. 
you know, and a lot of times working in the same spheres, but Mm -hmm. not connected to each other, and don't have much visibility or presence at a grassroots level. You Mm -hmm. know, when you get past Planned Parenthood, um, uh, you know, there aren't that many organizations out there that have a real presence in localities across the country, you know, and I think the Women's March sort of spoke to that, too. What do you, what do you, what is your, uh, as I teased earlier, I I do want to talk about Ivanka Trump um, (laughs) a little bit. I mean, she's, she's, as as you know, as others know, she's embraced this thing and made the this the idea of imp- women empowerment a big part of what she is going to be doing. As I've talked to some Democratic women, I think they're, she's a bit of a controversial figure. And I've heard from, in their view, Democratic women, um, that there's even in this town, there's been some resistance to if, if she reached out to them, um, whether they making a choice on whether they want to engage um, with her, with this White House. And I'm looking for your thoughts on that. Um, well, let me say first, I, I've never met Ivanka Trump. Um, and I am enormously sympathetic, given my prior job, to family members who, you know, didn't necessarily seek out this spotlight for themselves, but are thrust upon it mm-hmm. by their family member who is now, you know, elected president of the United States. And so I'm I'm, I come from a place probably because of my experience where I'm, you know, very um, sympathetic to family members um, who who find themselves and who are also take, you know, some – I'll give her credit, you know, she and Jared apparently for taking seriously the responsibility and the opportunity they have to serve the American public as well even though they weren't elected and trying to chart an um, unnavigated way of doing that as adult children um, of, of the President of the United States. Um, so I, I sort of come probably from a different place, you know, than, than some of the other Democrats. But I concede it's complicated because, you know, as I said earlier, I think it's a mark of how far we have come that, you know, this Republican White House um, feels compelled to talk about you know, women's empowerment and women's entrepreneurship and to do some things, you know, in support of that. And child care and paid leave, some of the things she talked about at the Republican convention. So I, I think we should all celebrate that. I mean, that's an important sea change in our national dialogue that really a decade ago would not have happened. Really, I mean, the Republican Party positions, you know, even their platform four years ago, right, was didn't have any of these things in it. Um so that's 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 a positive, but I think we have to be eyes wide open because there are a lot of Republican proposals. For example, for um, Eric Cantor a couple of years ago had a bill that was titled like the Workplace Flexibility Bill. I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. Except what it did was it gave you flexibility by eviscerating wage and hour protections. You can have flexibility, yeah. but don't come looking for overtime protections I mean, I think anymore. That's the rub that I'm hearing is that she. The critics of her say she projects the image of a, of a feminist, but it's not following through in their view with the actions speaking out for the right issues. I mean, do you hold that view as well? Well, I, I'll be honest because remember I said I wasn't having read the paper that closely. I, I so I don't know what mm-hmm. are her specific proposals that she's put out there. I'm not sure she's actually put any specific proposals mm-hmm. yet. Um, she has put has the child care, uh, the family leave. Proposal of several months. Um, I think it's for parental leave, right? Parental is, leave, or, yes. or maternity leave. Was it just maternity? It started it? as maternity and then it moved to parental. parental. Yes. I mean, well, that's After the kind of criticism. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of thing I think we have to keep um, hold to. I mean, so I mean, giving her the benefit of the doubt. You know, um, I guess that's where I would start. I, th- I think you know, I think it's a 
it's good that they're talking about these issues. But then I think we have to be very vigilant. You can't just put maternity leave you know, proposals out there, not just because it's discriminatory to men, but because if only women get maternity leave, then women will, will be discriminated against because they're the only ones who get maternity leave. Work, you know, employers will not hire them because they're required to give the woman maternity leave without giving the man, you know, family leave, you know, at the same time. And, you know, not to sit, not not to mention the fact that you've just left out whole segments of people who want to care for, you know, for a wounded warrior who's come home, their spouse who's just come home, or for aging parents, um, uh, or when they're themselves sick. Um, so. You know, there, we have to, and then we and we do have to speak out about those and hold the Republicans accountable. Um, if you really want to be supporting families, then we're going to examine your proposals and see whether they do hold families, um, uh, really do help families. And if not, we're going to we have to speak out about those and speak out loudly. So I guess what I'm saying is I wouldn't say I'm never going to work with her just because she's Ivanka Trump in the White House. I think you have to like really hold them to what their rhetoric is and seeing if their policies match their rhetoric. And if they do, then it would be good for families if we could support those and we mm-hmm. could get them through. But if they don't, then we should not be enacting do you them. See, you see, do you see a potential collaboration with her? I have no idea. And I mean, I really don't. Yeah. I really don't. I mean, I, because um, – because I don't know what the specifics mm-hmm. are and whether there's a potential collaboration to me, it's all based on what you're actually mm-hmm. doing, mm-hmm. not just what you're saying. It's got to be about what are the actual real proposals because there's a lot of things out there that can really hurt women and girls that look like they're trying to help women and girls and, and they could really hurt them. The White House Council or Office Council of Women, Council and, girls. Of women and Girls. Right. Um, unclear what the fate of that. Unclear. I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it was created by an executive order. Mm-hmm. So, you know, executive orders, as we know, are, mm-hmm. you know, are something that can be, you know. You and, know. and just so p- listeners understand what the what the Council on Women and Girls is, that's something that the president, President Obama. Yes. S- started. He created yeah. by executive order in March of 09. So one of the first executive, you know, very early on in the in the administration. Um, so Valerie chaired it. We chaired it from the White House. I was the executive director. But it, you know, functioned a lot like, for example, the Domestic Policy Council, in which every domestic policy agency is a member. Council of Women and Girls, every cabinet agency, every major White House policy office was a member, right? And we um, were required to, like, nominate people within the agencies to be our representatives, you know, on the White House Council of Women and Girls. We had regular meetings of all of those folks. And the charge was... Um, both to work collectively on some of the big priority issues affecting women and girls, so whether it was violence against women or economic opportunity, health care, um, education. Um, but then we also charged the agencies to you know, develop their own initiatives and programs and policies to take into account the needs of women and girls and everything that they did. Because no matter who you are in the federal government, you touch the lives of women and girls. Uh, you know, on that point, I think one of the one of the goals of women rule is to c- uncover these areas in policy that um, where there's a women's issue that's not readily apparent. Given how steeped you had been in <laughs> policy for the last eight years um, at this White House, what's one surprising area where there was a women's issue that's not readily apparent? In the Affordable Care Act, you know, we made a requirement. This is another one of those little-known requirements, but there's a requirement in the Affordable Care Act for um, uh, both gender and racial disparities to be accounted for in medical research. Because most medical research is also done 
um, with a paradigm of a white male patient. You do away with the Affordable Care Act, you do away with that requirement too. Hmm. It's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Um, have you? Uh, would you ever run for office? No. <laughs> Even though I'm encouraging lots of women to run for office. Why, 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 wouldn't, why wouldn't you run for office? Well, first of all, I happen to be, you know, when I move home to Chicago, I will be, you know, and I've always, you know, always lived and voted in Chicago. I kept my house there. Um, you know, I'm blessed with living in a district where I, all my representatives, like Jan Schakowsky, <laughs> are people who are doing really good jobs uh, um, and, and what they're doing. Um, so that's number one. Number two is it is really hard. It's, you know, we have to admire the people. You know, and the public servants who do it, and um, I'm probably, and you know, a little bit, you know, more like, you know, my my boss, you know, Mrs. Obama, where you know we we like to speak our minds, <laughs> we like to be direct. You don't always get to do that when you're when when you're when you're a candidate. Um, I'll continue to support candidates. I really think that lots of um, women should run. You know, and I'm, yeah, I'm, you and can... I'm getting old, Carrie. Yeah, I'm getting too old <laughs> no, to do this. No, no, no. <laughs> so there's no. It, it, how many women have you recruited to – I mean, how much of a part of that running for office? Um, what's the hardest selling point that you find? You know, it's just – it's part of that same old thing you hear a lot, you know, about who, women, you know, wanting to know all the answers before they volunteer for a job as opposed to the yeah. men who don't care if they don't know any of the answers and they volunteer totally. for the job, right? It's that same <laughs> phenomenon, <right? laughs> like, what, What's like the most underappreciated strategy for recruiting women into office? Like is it is it – Underappreciated strategy. Well, the, the money piece is a big barrier. Yeah. So, and there's been a lot of discussion yes. about the money. Um, I will say one of the barriers to the money because Emily's list is fantastic uh -huh. and has developed that a lot. But one of the stumbling blocks is Emily's list operates at a state level, um, statewide level, or congressional level, mm -hmm. um, and we don't have enough mechanisms that can operate at the school board level. And that's um, a huge piece of it, getting people into the piece. local the that's local the pipeline. first, right? That's the pipeline. I mean, the pipeline is you run for city council or you run, you know, for a local piece. Um, and that's a piece that women actually often know. They know school boards. They know what's going on in the schools. Um, but we have to start to create better mechanisms to support, you know, women running there, you know, and then working their way up. I'm very optimistic we'll see a whole new generation of, of young leaders coming forward. It's not going to be you. Well, I'm not one a young leader, yeah, Carrie. I, know, I, know. <laughs> I hear you. Um, what I mean on the on the on, what I was going to get to was was the idea of um, the the difference between men and women and how they make decisions. Um, the 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 aspect of having to to convince women that they have um, every right to be in the same spot as a man, right. or that they have this they have as much reason to try to shoot for something. What is your tactic for talking through women, talking through it with women that you're trying to encourage to run? Why they should take that risk, uh, how they get over that fear of failure. Is that something that you um, resonates with you? Oh, yeah. I yeah, mean, I, I think, think we, I think we, we, yeah. we, we, we all have that. I mean, I and, guess. And how do you push past it? Well, so a couple things. One is to remember, which I used to remind myself, um, when I was a young lawyer, um, uh, is, you know, don't assume that everybody who's standing next to you in a courtroom knows what they're talking about. Because most of the time, they have no idea. Like, you know, I, I tell you, but stand, you know, half the time when you're advocating, you know, as a lawyer, you have to assume that, you know, most of the people on the other side of the table actually 
are just making it up. They're totally faking it. They have no idea what they're talking about. Um, and it's really kind of true. Um, and when you realize that. When did you learn that? So. Um, or is it a process of like gaining confidence? But no, sorry. I learned. I had. I'm trying to remember who it was that first told me this. And I think it may have been one of. I think it was. I think it's shortly after I started practicing at Skadden. One of the, um, the 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 litigation partner in the Chicago office it was a very small office at the time. So there were several times I literally was a second year law you know person out of law school had to go off to court to argue case some some things at the last minute because usually it was in the merger and acquisition area it was a fast moving things were happening right away. Um, so Tim, I remember, told me this. Like, don't assume everybody knows what they're talking about. Half the people are kind of faking it. And then relatively early on, and I think this happened like in my first year there, um, I had to do one of these like run to court and really argue a huge case. Um, to, that was somebody was trying to stop a merger that we were in. And we're in state court in Chicago. And I'm on my own because he was off doing, you know, out of town and off doing some other part of the case. And it's all partners from big Chicago law firms and me, the Asian woman who's just an associate, <laughs> standing <laughs> up at the podium. And I'm realizing as all this argument's going on that there's a really basic principle of law that is not getting argued that would prevent this injunction against this deal from going out. And I won't bore you with yeah. what that is. But there was it was a really yeah. basic principle. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, nobody's saying this. Like, why is nobody saying this? Am I wrong that this is applicable or not? But am I right? And I kind of whispered it to the guy next door. I could see this light bulb go off in his head. And I realized he had no idea. Like, I am totally right. And then we said – he said it and then I said it. I wasn't going to let him just say it. So even then I had oh, enough moxie to realize, yeah. all right, you're not just taking credit for this argument. Yeah, like, yeah. he said it first and I let him say it. But then I chimed in because yeah. it was my idea. But totally none of those other people up there, all of yeah. these other senior – and I'm pretty sure they were all men – you know, had thought of this argument. And here I am, the second year, you know, out of law yeah. school kid – Thinking it. And that was the other lesson that showed me, like, all these guys have, like, no idea what they're talking about. (laughs) And I think that gets to the principle, like, feeling like second-guessing your abilities, right? Right. And And uh, I don't do that very often since then. I mean, that was a good lesson to me to say, don't second-guess. Yeah. You know, so I'll wait a beat just because I think it's always good to wait Mm -hmm. a beat before you open your mouth and say something and rethink it. Yeah. But I – I if I have something to say, I will really never leave the room without saying it. Mm. I mean, I, and I think that's really important. You mm. know, if you're in the room, if you're you know in the room where it happens, right? If you're there, mm-hmm. then you should make the most of it. And I think as women, too often we don't because we're self questioning ourselves, or we yeah. don't think our opinion has value. Well, we don't want to look stupid, or right? But about, you got yeah. invited into the room already. Yeah. Like if you're standing in there, you're in there for a reason already. Some of the times people will dismiss it, you know, so what, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, keep saying it. That doesn't mean like you don't have to like bring the house down with every word you say every time you say it. Yeah. Um, if you do that 25% of the time, you have made a huge contribution, right? Um, uh, but, you know, being, you know, in 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 the in the field, right, and engaged, mm-hmm. I think is really important. I think as women, we don't do that enough. Yeah. You know, and guess what? Men only affect, you know, bring the house down 25% of the time. <laughs> the other 75% of the time, right. yeah. what they're saying is bullshit and is not really very interesting. <laughs> and they're still saying it, right? It's good advice. What would you what would you tell your younger self or younger women that you work with about that realm of speaking out, confidence, encouragement, like... All right, I'm going to say something a little controversial. 
Because actually, I'm going to say appearances actually kind of matter. Hmm. I mean, I'm, and now I'm a little old school because, you know, I grew up in a period of time where, you know, women didn't wear pants to court, you know, all that kind of stuff. I kind hmm. of, you know, I never um, – and I, I – had had some conversations with my young women lawyers about this once. I never adhered to when law firms finally went to like casual Fridays, which took a long time for Skadden Arps to get to, <laughs> by the way. But when that finally happened, I never did it. And um, I remember I had a fielded a team of all women, unusually, on some big case that had tons of lawyers from every mm-hmm. big law firm in Chicago um, as co-defendants. And we were going to go in for a meeting. Um, and I think it was a weekend meeting, which is why people were asking me, well, what do you think we should wear? And I said, well, here's the thing. As a woman, you get a hard enough time getting your attention paid to you. Mm. you know. And the last thing I think you need to add to that is to come in jeans and a T-shirt to a business meeting, even if it is on a Saturday. And I don't care if the guys are in jeans and T-shirts. You know, and I'm not saying you should wear a suit on a Saturday, but you could should still come dressed professionally and ready to do business as a woman you know, mm-hmm. because we have too many strikes against us. And I say this as an Asian woman who really people would walk, look at me in court and say, what are you doing here? You know, or as I had one juror once tell me after a case, I'm so glad you could speak English so well. It's like, R-I-V. And the fact there is that you that's the only <laughs> language you speak, right? Exactly. <laughs> the only language I can speak. You already yeah. have all of those external assumptions about you mm-hmm. happening. So mm. you just got it. You can't – it doesn't help you to say they shouldn't matter and so I'm not going to pay attention to them. I actually think – this is why it's a little controversial. Most yeah. people think politically yeah. it shouldn't matter what my hair looks like, what I'm wearing. Yep. If I'm a woman, I should be able to dress like just like guys. And I say don't do it. Do you have a dress code in the East Wing? <laughs> no, we didn't. But the White House – we didn't because everybody in the White House knew that mm-hmm. you're expected to dress mm-hmm. with the White House. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I even though I was a practicing lawyer, I upped my game, you know, um, yeah. when I went to the White House mm. even. You know, I used to wear flats a lot. I wore a lot of heels. Yeah. <laughs> well, totally. because yeah. at yeah. some point, you know, it's the White House. Yeah. And it really is – you know, I have come in eight years to revere the mm-hmm. symbolism of the place mm-hmm. and what it means to our country. And you are only temporary custodians of that image. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think how you conduct yourself, you know, um, in the White House during business hours um, is important because it represents the entire country. And I think everybody – we didn't really have to tell people that. Mm-hmm. Everybody – on occasion, we'd have to take a, tell an intern <laughs> or two. Yeah, shorts are really bad yeah, for yeah, yeah. <laughs> But no, most of it, no, other than the the occasional intern, I think everybody kind of understood that, yeah. you know, without without being told. Good. Well, I'm going to wrap up with one question that um, goes back to a conversation we had right before you left the White House. You were talking about mm. um, how you were going to fly out on the plane with the president <laughs> and the first lady out of Andrews Air Force Base. And that... And the idea of that really struck me as something quite interesting. And I'm a little obsessed with what happened on that plane <laughs> as you took off. As, as, as you know, for listeners, there was a small group of people who left Andrews Air Force Base right when the – after the, the former president, first lady, had the goodbye ceremony at Andrews and then got on the plane and took off, which I just – think is a is it just sort of I would have loved to be on that plane and I, and I so can you tell me what happened on that plane <laughs> what was it like in there what was the mood like and what was the feeling well it was a mix first of all it was really weird to be on the plane with so few people 
because, you know, every other time any of us have ever been on the plane, it's mm-hmm. packed to the gills. Yeah. You guys are in the back, yeah. right? You know? <laughs> so there was no press on the plane. There was a moment where we realized, oh, there's no press on the plane. We can walk all the way to the back there. Did you guys like, be run there. back and forth? <laughs> right. Um, so it so it was a, it was very yeah. small, and so that that was a, a it was a little that was a little unusual, and we you know sort of didn't quite know what to do with ourselves on it. Um, uh, I think there was. You know, largely there was a real sense of accomplishment, you know, meaning I think we all felt really good about what we'd been able to accomplish in eight mm-hmm. years, both substantively, you know, and the and the, the, the positive things we'd done, the things we'd avoided. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there was a moment where we were like, got through eight years and nothing bad happened, right? Yeah. You know, no scandals, no, you know, mm-hmm. issues, um, which is a real testament, I think, mm-hmm. to the tone that the president and the first lady, you know, set for everyone and at, at the top. Um, was that the discussion or like what what did you talk yeah, about? Yeah, we did. We, we yeah. did sort of say, you know, you know, we, we got through it. So that that feeling of accomplishment and, and I think we all felt good and we did talk about this. And we all felt good that, you know, there were no regrets. Like no one was sitting on the plane thinking, oh, I wish we had done this or I wish we had done that. I Do you miss I, being in the White House? Do you wish you were still there? Um no, actually, I'm, and I surprised myself mm. by that. That that not. I mean, I think it's a different place now, you know, and it's you know occupied by different folks, and you know, I it's so I don't. I'm surprised a little bit by really? the the lack of nostalgia. I feel mm. I used to I, the, in the months leading up to it, I thought for sure I was going to have yeah. that. I kept walking around, thing, thinking, you know, well, today I can walk anywhere I want to, and. January 21st, I won't even be able to get on the premises. Um, That's kind of a weird feeling, like the anticipation of it. And now afterwards, I don't, you know, I'm relaxing. I'm kind Mm -hmm. of enjoying what I'm doing. I do have that sense of accomplishment of what we did, and I don't feel a need to sort of go back and do a do-over on anything. So, Are you surprised now at maybe how stressed you were at some point or how you live like that almost? Is there any of that, given the demands? there's a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you do – you know, this was, you know, I were talking about traffic, yeah. right? You know, my discovery my <laughs> discovery in this new life is real rush hour traffic in D.C. <laughs> because in eight years of being in this town, I didn't experience it because we'd be go, driving down at 730 in the morning mm-hmm. and driving home at 730 or later at mm-hmm. night. And I look at the new occupants and I understand how hard a time it is that they're having mm-hmm. because it's hard. It's mm-hmm. harder than people think it is. I like to think it's harder than they realize we did because I think we did it pretty well of keeping things looking calm and mm-hmm. responding to things, responding to inquiries from the press, or, mm-hmm. you know, um, being read up on whatever the, the question is, whether it's healthcare mm-hmm. to Iraq to, you know, mm-hmm. the environment. Now you're on the outside looking in. I, <laughs> yeah, we are. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tina. Oh, thank you. It was fun. It was I liked pleasure. it.